It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. If you asked famed 19th century Delmonico chef Charles Ranhofer to serve your Thanksgiving turkey roasted and succulent with an oyster dressing but served on a platter complete with all its fan of tail feathers and looking remarkably realistic, I'm sure he would say, of course, but you could do it yourself, or so he'd say. This is 1894 after all, and he's just published one of the greatest cookbooks ever written called The Epicurean, a complete testament of over a thousand pages to the food of the Gilded Age. Join me and my very special guest, food stylist, chef, and cookbook author Victoria Granoff for a look at this extraordinary Gilded Age chef and his recipes how they tasted, and most importantly, how they looked. And I assure you, Victoria knows all about both. Oh, and and along the way, you'll get a few tips for your next holiday dinner. And just remember, it's okay to start small. You can always work up to a peacock. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks I share stories, secrets, style, and often some scandal from the grand and glittering Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and late Victorian and Edwardian London, and usually over a nice cup of tea. The Gilded Age was, as we know, a time to show off, and as money became more plentiful, you could show off by building a great mansion or buying the most expensive jewels and, of course, wearing the finest clothes, usually from Paris. And it was a time when you could show off with food. At your next dinner party, well, why not show off by serving a roast peacock delivered to the table with all its plumes, or perhaps delicately poached salmon covered in a clear aspic with a mosaic of finely cut truffles laid over the top, or even perhaps adorned with skewers of the finest silver with scallops, more truffles, and tiny shrimp threaded onto them in a dramatic display. Or, if your own downstairs staff wasn't really up to this kind of thing, well, there was a place where you could go where master chefs would do it for you. It was a restaurant called Delmonico's. How did American food transform itself from sustenance to a sign of elegance, ostentation, or, depending on how you looked at it, art? This show attempts to take a look. In 1885, after he had returned to England from a tour of America, Oscar Wilde, the great writer and wit, commented in a literary review, The two most remarkable bits of scenery in the United States are undoubtedly Delmonico's and Yosemite Valley. 
At the moment that Weil made his comment, New York's Delmonico's restaurant was the most famous restaurant in the world. It had begun as a modest wine merchant and pastry shop downtown by the seaport by two Swiss brothers back in the 1820s, but had grown over the years to really set the standard in America for classic French cuisine. Delmonico's and just the name alone, came to mean luxury, extravagance, and limitless possibility, Delmonico's became famous for creating stunning theater on its tables and in its dining rooms. And as America healed from its civil war and inched toward the ostentations of the Gilded Age, the concept of a lavish restaurant had evolved into more. Restaurants had become stage sets to show off the spoils of new money, jewels, clothes, social position, and aspiration. Menus offered the Gilded Age staples of rich canvasback duck and Madeira and peppery Maryland terrapin, both extremely expensive and increasingly endangered. Price was no object. Delmonico's fame increased as reports circulated of over-the-top dinners, including one special dinner that included a centerpiece of a tabletop lake with two live swans swimming around in a gold Tiffany cage. One of the most talked-about evenings took place at Delmonico's at their 14th Street location on the evening of April 9, 1868, even before the Gilded Age hit its full stride. A sumptuous dinner was hosted by the New York Press Club, and the guest of honor was none other than Charles Dickens. Dickens was none other than a literary superstar at this point. He'd been to New York before, in 1842, and been honored at an enormous ball and supper for 3,000 guests at the elegantly appointed Park Theater, as well as some other elegant dinners and receptions during his stay. However, when he returned to England and wrote his scathing appraisal of his time in America, he was deeply critical of the New York he experienced, and he flat-out trashed the food. And in a way, he was right. New York was pretty much of a culinary wasteland in those early years. All the European tourists said so. But this time, sitting at the head table at Delmonico's sparkly Union Square location at a dinner with 11 courses and over 30 dishes, one of which was even named for him, well, for Charles Dickens and for New York, this was a whole different story. In the more than 20 years since Dickens' first visit to New York, the New York food scene had dramatically changed, and that was in great part due to the genius of Lorenzo Delmonico, the ambitious nephew of the two founding brothers who had a brilliant marketing mind, saw an opportunity unfolding before him, and had a flaming fire in his belly. He would try anything. Perhaps Lorenzo's most genius moment came as he continued to bring his hospitality empire up to not an American standard, no, but to the Parisian standard in which gourmands were reveling in the new grand restaurants lining the glittering boulevards of Europe's great city. Dishes in mid-19th century Paris restaurants were as glamorous as the people savoring them, and Lorenzo wanted someone who could do that in his kitchens. That man was Charles Ranhofer, America's first real celebrity chef. Ranhofer had culinary artistry in his blood. His father and grandfather had been chefs. He himself had been apprenticed to a pastry chef in Paris when he was 12 years old and was cooking professionally as an adolescent. Later, as an ambitious young man in his 20s in Paris, he'd been witness not only to the food revolution taking place in Paris over those early years of the 19th century, but of the moment when food and cooking had become art. 
Ranhofer knew how to manage an enormous kitchen and to produce the finest and most dramatic cuisine. He was fresh, after all, from serving as the banquet chef and manager to Napoleon III and Empress Eugenie, serving the grand suppers at the sumptuous and lavish balls of the Second Empire at the Tuileries Palace. Lorenzo had his eye on Ranhofer after his arrival in New York, and when Ranhofer became available for a new position, Lorenzo engaged him immediately. He hadn't just hired a chef, he'd hired an artist. And Ranhofer had a chance to show just that artistry in the array of dishes created just for the occasion of the Dickens dinner. No dinner would have been complete without a dish created and named in honor of Queen Victoria, particularly when honoring a British writer. And indeed, Ranhofer rose to the occasion with his salmon a la Victoria, which we're going to look at more closely in just a couple of minutes. If you look closely at the menu which survives from this evening, you'll see some notes added to the bottom of the dishes. The title above them reads Pièce Montée. The exact translation from the French is actually mounted pieces, but translated more loosely as set pieces or show pieces. It refers to the detailed, oversized, architectural sculptures created from spun sugar and sometimes finely shaved and sculpted ice that were used to decorate the most extravagant and elegant of Paris's finest tables. The art of the pièce montée had been created and refined in France by the great chef Marie-Antoine Carême in the very early years of the 19th century and was a hallmark of any important dinner. They were beautiful and jaw-dropping to look at, of course, but the message was that you, of course, had the finest and most highly trained chef down in your kitchen to create them. Diners found towering Greek temples complete with gods and goddesses surrounding them, fighting ships in full sail complete with masts and rigging, military columns and Chinese pagodas all adorning their tables, created with time-consuming and painstaking detail by master patisseurs and sugar artists. Ranhofer, in carrying on the direct line from the legacy of Karem, was a consummate artist in food. And he hired European sous chefs now in New York looking for work that he trusted to do it too. The particular pièce montée created for the Dickens dinner included a replica of the Washington Monument, the British coat of arms, a temple to literature, and a grand trophy in honor of the author. Renhofer, after directing the kitchens of Delmonico's from 1862 until 1896, over 30 years, he retired and he passed away in New York in 1899, just as the baton was about to be passed in the culinary world to the great French chef Auguste Escoffier, the famed chef of the Paris Ritz. Ranhofer left us, however, a great legacy of style and fantasy for both the plate and the palate, and he left us with his massive cookbook published in 1894, The Epicurean, a 1,000-page book with 3,500 recipes and illustrations that documented his work. It is a supreme resource to the food of Delmonico's and much of the food of the Gilded Age. What was involved in creating these great sculptures for the table? And with all this dramatic, elaborate food, just how was it all made? How did these intricate sauces taste? And, oh yes, um, about that peacock, just how did you pluck it? and stuff it and roast it and then put it all back together again. When I return from my break, my guest, the extraordinary culinary artist, chef, and director, Victoria Granoff, will join me to tell you exactly how.
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. We're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I am beyond happy to introduce you to my guest for today's show, Victoria Granoff. There is no one that understands the connection between food and the visual arts like Victoria. Victoria and I have known each other for years. I was the marketing director for Victoria's very first cookbook. Victoria Granoff is the creative director and food stylist for her eponymous Victoria Granoff Studio. Victoria trained at London's Cordon Bleu in addition to completing a degree in visual arts. She worked extensively as a chef, including at her own restaurant in California, before relocating to New York and pioneering an artistic approach to food media. She spent a decade in collaboration with the photographer Irving Penn and has further collaborated with chefs Marcus Samuelson, the late Anthony Bourdain, and Mark Bittman. She has published three cookbooks of her own, and her work has appeared in American Vogue, The New York Times, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, and Martha Stewart, among many, many others. Victoria, I could just go on and on, but welcome to The Gilded Gentleman, and thank you so, so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so glad you are here. I always love chatting with you. Now, there are so many places that we could dive in here. Now, we said, given what was going on in France and really transferring over here to America, sort of mid-century, food and art were sort of fusing together. Now, given your perspective on both of these things, can you talk a little bit about what you see as the impact the visual has on taste and how they work together or not? Well, first of all, we have to differentiate taste, flavor taste, from taste, cultural taste, good taste. Those don't always go together. You don't have to have good taste. You don't always have good taste when you're dealing with this kind of food. You know, you hear a lot about eating with your eyes first and hungry eyes and all of this. And in my work, I use the principles and elements of design, shape, texture, color, balance, harmony, unity, scale, proportion, all that stuff. I use that when I'm styling my food or when I'm directing a commercial or something. And I think those principles allow your brain to make visual sense of what you're about to eat. And I think it is that's the appetizer. When you look at something beautiful, that is what allows your taste buds to come in and appreciate it. So when you think about all of this very dramatic and spectacular visual food, mm -hmm. there really might have been a point to it yeah. after all. Mm -hmm. There might have been a point to it. You know, apart from being ostentatious and showy and nouveau riche and all of that, there might actually be a connection there. Well, whether they realize it or not, it's just interesting with yeah. our modern eyes to look at that. Right. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that peacock. Now, roasting fowl <laughs> and then serving it with the feathers and all that sort of thing, that's actually something that really goes back to, to Tudor times, but it really doesn't get much more dramatic than this presentation. Um, the first line of Ranhofer's recipe is, procure a young peacock with very brilliant plumage. 
Victoria, do you, do you have any comment on where you start with a recipe that starts like that? You could probably find one roaming around Queens. Uh, no, actually, there's a whole, I don't know what you would call it. Is it a, is it a flock of peacocks? Is it a brace of peacocks? I don't oh, know. I what, don't know. Listeners, um, let us know. I, let us I don't know, know. What, <laughs> what multiple peacocks, <laughs> yes, what the term is for multiple peacocks are roaming around St. John the Divine in Upper Manhattan. They just kind of roam around wild around the grounds of St. John the Divine. And also Martha Stewart keeps peacocks. Really? Yes, up in Bedford. She keeps peacocks just roaming around, free-range, beautiful peacocks. Now, I don't know, she keeps peafowl. We have to be specific because peafowl includes the male, which is the beautiful one, and the peahen. Oh, I see. So both of those count as peafowl. Peafowl. Goodness. Now, one thing I want listeners to really appreciate here with this time in culinary history is that if you were going to prepare a peacock, you wouldn't get just this lovely plucked, you know, skinless Oof. breast in a the, to prepare. Mm-mm. You would have to pluck it, skin it, defeather it, the whole thing. So, Victoria, can you talk a little bit about what someone would have had to do? do and not just about peacocks of course any sort of feathered fowl like yeah. what would have how would you have started with this this was a project right oh yeah in fact when i moved to london to attend culinary school i shared a flat with a few people and there was one girl that was a semester ahead of me in school and the first thing i did when i went into the shower there was a pheasant hanging there in the shower dripping blood because it had been shot wild and you have to hang wild game because it's been running around so much and developing musculature that you have to hang it to have it kind of start to decompose and tenderize and develop some flavor before you eat it. Otherwise, it's tough as a shoe. And I'm sure the peacock is the same. But wow! You, yeah, <laughs> I know. And isn't what, that delicious sounding? And what about getting all the feathers off? There's, well, that's going to be a process oh, too. <laughs> well, it's heat. So first, you have to boil. You have to get boiling water. You have to keep dunking it in the boiling water. That opens the pores, so that you get the big feathers out. And then you have to singe the little feathers over an open flame. Then you have to pluck. That's well, plucking. Then you draw it, which is a lovely way of saying you know eviscerate it. And then, you know, you would probably have to rub it with salt and let it hang for a couple of days to get rid of all the stuff and have it tenderize itself and, yeah, start to develop flavor. A big project. But imagine in these restaurants, how many chefs would have to have been involved to to do something like that? You know, people think that chefing is a glamour job, but (laughs) (laughs) it's not at all. Maybe for one person, but not the rest of the kitchen. Now, I want to take a look at the recipe for the Salmon a la Victoria, partly in honor of you, of course, but in honor of um, Queen Victoria from the Dickens dinner. So I'm going to actually read the recipe and then let's talk about this is the actual recipe from Ranhofer for the Salmon a la Victoria. Trim slices of fish, each about a half an inch thick, and cook them in a mirepoix stock, moistened with red wine, and when done, which will take from 8 to 10 minutes, drain them off and strain the stock, reduce this, and despamate, oh, it's my favorite new word, means skim, despamate it. Just when ready, stir in a piece of lobster butter. (laughs) Serve the dish surrounded by sautéed lobster scallops and small anchovy tartlets. Cover the lobster with half of the sauce and pour the remainder into a sauce boat to be served 
at the same time. Victoria, what's your reaction to this recipe? Where, where do we start with this? <laughs> well, having worked in restaurant kitchens, when you got to the anchovy tartlet, I thought, this is a brunch buffet. They had the anchovy tartlets left over, and now they're repurposing them and five of the other ingredients that they had left over from the rest of the week, and now this is a brunch dish. You know, they how many people did they have? They must have had dozens upon dozens of cooks in that kitchen. And, you know, when you're in a restaurant kitchen, you have one person that's making the sauces. You have a saucier. So, you know, so you go to that guy and he's got five mother sauces and four daughter sauces, you know, and you harvest the sauce from that person and then harvest the, you know, lobster butter from three people down at the end of the line. And, you know, it's all... It's already prepared. It's a big pyramid scheme. Well, that's what I call an airy pyramid scheme. But that's what I think is so interesting when I read that recipe is that there are actually five other things that are all had to be made ahead of time Mm -hmm. and done. You had the stock, this mirepoix, which is is just a vegetable stock, the lobster butter, that's mashing lobster shells and extracting the flavor and melting it with butter. Then you have, of course, the aforementioned anchovy tartlets. Mm -hmm. And you have a number of things that all have to be done ahead of time, which would have taken a lot of time and a lot of chef power. Right. That's the thing here. It would have, but then you think, did he design this dish and then create the components? Or did he go through his kitchen and look at all the little components he had and said, all right, let's throw this on here and make this with the, you know, so that's just a thing that I wonder. Well, I think that's a really interesting point because just to take the Dickens dinner again as Mm -hmm. an example, that night, so many of the dishes were named for other literary Figures. There was a Tembal for Dickens. There was a Sir Walter Scott something. There was, you know, they were named James. There was even a James Fenimore Cooper something. And these were not recipes that were standard recipes. These were things that were created for the event. And it does really make you wonder were these things created of bits and pieces of processes that were all sort of there there. and voila, we now have. Mutton mm-hmm. chops a la Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. It's really, no, really, but it's interesting. So I want to take another look at one of his recipes. And this is one of the sauces. And this is fascinating to me. This is really, it shows how elaborate these things really were. If you think the salmon was elaborate, this is even more. And I think this gives you a really good idea of what was going on in those kitchens to make just one sauce. So this recipe, it's called the sauce Perigot, which is a sauce that was made using the French. Right, the truffles from Mm. the Perigord, the Mm -hmm. uh, region of of France. This sauce actually was, we we know, was served over um, chicken at a midnight ball given by Mrs. Astor in 1899. So this really was... Mm. Was um, Well, I'm sure it was used other times, too, but we definitely know it was used that. So this is that recipe, and listeners, stay with me here because it's getting intense. <laughs> Peel three ounces of fresh truffles, cook them in some salt and Madeira wine, remove them from the fire, and keep them in a covered vessel. Infuse in two gills, and a gill was just about a, a half a cup, uh, of boiling Madeira wine, one ounce of raw ham cut into dice, The truffle peelings, some thyme, bay leaf, and sprigs of parsley. Put on the fire to reduce one pint of espagnol. Stir slowly into it one pint of veal blonde and the same quantity of the Madeira infusion. 
When the sauce is succulent and sufficiently consistent, strain it and set it into a saucepan with a few spoonfuls of the cooked truffles cut into eighth of an inch squares. And just when ready to serve, incorporate one ounce of fresh butter. Help me, Victoria. Mm. What do we, how do we unpack this one? Wow. Well, that might actually have tasted good. Although you could just give me the three ounces of peeled truffles and that little butter and I'd be fine. That could actually taste good. Really? With all yeah. those flavors fighting With each other? all those flavors, but I don't think they would be fighting each other. And butter, when you add butter, it evens things out and brings thing, things together at the end. The Madeira was just a, a note there. It might actually have been good. We'll have to make it. I don't know, but <laughs> you, I know we'll have to try it. Let's let's get it next time you get a hold of three ounces of fresh black truffles. You let truffles. me know. But then there's the ham too. That's where it sort of goes off the rails. Why? What happened? What, what do you I, think? You know, you know, whenever you're making a sauce with a protein to go on another protein, it almost feels like a little cannibalistic to me. I don't mm. know. It just feels strange. But once again, the same way we saw with the salmon a la Victoria, you have to have your Espanol made. Right. That's a sauce, so you have to have that made. Yep. You have to have the, what's the other piece in here? You there have is to a have veal the, blonde. You have to have the veal the, blonde, right. the blonde, the veal stock. I mean, right. you have to have all these pieces done, which would have taken hours and well, and a classic a classic kitchen such as Ranhoffer's would have all those sauces. They would have a bechamel. They would have a you know they would have what we call the mother sauces, and then they would have the daughter sauces, and they would have those there. And the sauciers would be able to you know pick some little bits from elsewhere, add it to that sauce, and all of a sudden it's you know sauce a la you know Mark Twain or whatever it is. Right. Well, and know? I think that's what's interesting when you look at the sauces in the book. That's exactly what you see, is these combinations of things that you may not really think about, which is why I asked the question, do all these flavors fight? And and perhaps they did not. Maybe is, they it, didn't. Yeah, it's interesting um, to see that. So we have to get to those pièces montées, those oh, sugar gosh. sculptures. Now, Victoria, you have certainly done some dramatic sculptures in food. I have I have seen them live. I've seen pictures of them. Before we get into the actual creation of the pièce montée, can you talk about some of the most dramatic pieces that you yourself have done? One of my favorites would have to be the life-size Marie Antoinette that I created out of candy. It was a spec piece involving Dylan's Candy Bar and Madame Tussauds Wax Museum and a possible cooking show. Wow. Yeah. I had four assistants and myself, and it took us five days to create this thing. And we had one person whose job it was, the only job was to unwrap little gold-wrapped candies. For four days, she was unwrapping these candies because we used the wrapping. For one thing, we took pink bubble gum and put masses of pink bubble gum together and then rolled it through a pasta sheeter to make sheets of bubble gum and then cut those into big ribbons. And it was really, really fun. And you will somehow post a picture of this so that we can see this, my yeah, listeners. Can... <laughs> it's somewhere. It's somewhere. But what's I'll dig is it out. That was really a pièce montée. That was really very similar to what we're talking about on these tables of the 19th century. Yeah, I mean, if it had lived in the middle of a table, it would have been. Now, 
one of the things that that there were several recipes, many recipes actually for creating these these sculptures that mm-hmm. Renhofer gives us. Um, so I wanted to look at a, an, an easy one, a relatively easy one, mm-hmm. which is to create a basket, which is looks like a regular basket, except it's oh. made out of nougat and pulled sugar. Mm-hmm. And the concept when you the idea is you would make several of these to put around the table, and then you could either put candied fruit or real fruit, and it would create this dramatic effect. However, he tells us that to make this basket, you have to roll out nougat, which I assume you would have had to make yourself, we'll get to that, into a circle. And then you have to wrap wire with pieces of or or quantity of pulled sugar, and then literally weave this basket together. So can you talk a little bit about what working with what first of all, can you talk a little bit about what pulled sugar is, and what working with it is like? And so what this experience would have been like? Well, it's like working with live napalm is what it's like working with. Um, First, you have to get your sugar syrup between 320 and 335 degrees. Then you have to dump this whole thing out. Oh, and you have to do it in in a copper pot so that it conducts the heat evenly. Then you empty this out onto a marble slab. And you use spatulas to move it around until it's just the right temperature. But first, you have to have been apprenticing since the age of 12 to figure out visually what the right temperature would be. So you'd have a good 10 years burning your hands on this stuff before you could figure it out by sight. Then you have to put it on a heating pad over or a heated marble slab. Then you have to take heat-proof gloves and start to pull it, literally pull it. And as it cools, the crystals of sugar become kind of iridescent and opaque. But you have to do this under a heat lamp. And so the heat lamp and the surface and the ambient temperature of the room have to be exactly the same as the sugar. Wow. Right? I mean, I, so in the 19th century, what, we didn't have heat lamps. So maybe they did. I don't know what their version of that would have been. But A kerosene lamp or something? I don't know. But you would have. it's about maintaining the heat yes. so that you can work with this. Mm-hmm. It's about maintaining that heat. And then you have to have a, a little torch with an open flame that the, you then – it's almost – it's like glass blowing. That's what it is. It's really very analogous to glass blowing. Now – the other piece monte that I want to look at briefly was creating the ship. Now, <laughs> to create the ship in full sail here, oh this re- this requires more nougat, of course. which you are supposed to. Can you talk about making nougat, too? What's, what really is nougat? Well, nougat is sugar syrup at a different temperature that you pour into whipped egg whites, and then it becomes this big cloud of something that looks like marshmallows. And you put nuts in it or whatever it is, and you can that you can manipulate that. It's not hard. You can manipulate it after it cools. So you have to press that nougat into a mold, and then more wire. You have to wrap the wire with more of the pulled sugar. So you've got that situation going on. This is to right. make the mask, the masts. Uh huh. And then he notes that the waves, because of course you want waves here. The waves would have to be made out of pulled sugar. To how would you make waves out of pulled sugar? 
<laughs> well, you would have to pull the sugar to just the right. You'd have to pull it so that it would be very, very fine. You could ha you'd have to be able to see through it, but still be completely iridescent. Then you would have to sort of form it so that the light would play off of it and hit it in just the right way so it actually looks like water, which would involve coordinating your lighting in the room to your centerpiece because you would have to have light that would reflect that centerpiece and reflect those waves to make it look realistic. You know what, as you describe all this, what really, really strikes me, and, and this is particularly relating to the 19th century, because they wouldn't have had all the accoutrement that one has in a professional kitchen today, certainly. So what it comes down to a lot of my guess, and please confirm or correct me here, is it's about feel it's about visual, and it's about years and years. You alluded to it earlier, years and years of experience in touch and seeing. That's what would have gone into a chef's training to be able to oh, do this. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, the only people that can cook that way now are 85-year-old mothers who have been, you know, you see somebody who will give you a recipe and they'll say, oh, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that, because they've been making that recipe you know, for 50 years. And by this time, they know exactly by sight what it looks like. Well, if you're doing it professionally, you have to start at age 12 or 14. As he did. As he did. Yeah, that's what you have to do. And there's no TikTok. There was no, you know, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. There was no television. That's what they did. And this is why Sicilian grandmothers make the best pasta, right? Is that the yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. So lastly, as we sort of wind down here, and there's still so much more that we could discuss, I do want to talk about this truly, the concept of this enormous cookbook. It, it really was the most comprehensive, the most detailed cookbook that had been published since Carême had done his work nearly 100 years before Ranhofer and until just a few years after uh, Ranhofer published his, Auguste Escoffier was going to come out with his Guide Culinaire in 1903, and he was going to move the whole culinary world forward yet again. But when you look at this as a cookbook, and you have published three of them and worked on countless other cookbook projects, before we get into really looking at that, what do you think makes a good cookbook? What are, and whether it's then or now, what do you think makes a good cookbook? This is just my own personal this, – this is not written anywhere that I know of. This is just what I think, my own personal opinion, is that um, cookbooks used to be problem solvers. So if you had high cholesterol, you didn't have time, you didn't have a budget, you had allergies, you had dietary restrictions, you had a disease, you had heart disease, these cookbooks would teach you how to, you know, how to address those issues. And then it became – with the advent of social media, cookbooks became kind of voyeuristic. Like they became a, a, a peek into somebody else's life, probably not their real life, but, you know, close enough. Um, and people started just kind of enjoying them as a passive art form. And I, I think, I don't know who bought Ranhofer's book. I don't know who. Do you have any idea who purchased? Well, he this clearly book? he clearly was writing that for other chefs. This was I not. I would think this was not for the home cook. Interestingly, and this is a whole other show. There was another Delmonico's chef that existed before Ranhofer Filippini, and he produced uh, a cookbook too, which was much more much more restrained than Ranhofer's, and he was trying to pitch his book to 
certainly upper class homes, right? But but not with the level of of Ranhoffers, which is, and I think this is why Ranhoffers is such an extraordinary document because nowhere else do we have anything that explains what went on Del- Delmonico's tables with the extravagance that, I mean, it, that a, it did. Yeah, so it was so other chefs is, is other restaurants that were trying to emulate right. Delmonico's and private uh, chefs chefs in homes and everything. So for me, I think they fall into categories. There's an approachable cookbooks where you're not a cook at all, and they encourage you to get into the kitchen. Attainable, where you'd have some degree of you know, culinary knowledge, you feel sort of comfortable in a kitchen, and these recipes are maybe a bit beyond your, your normal. And then aspirational, which is maybe a weekend project or something that you would do once or something that is way beyond your skill set, but you would have fun doing it. And then the voyeuristic ones where people are enjoying the culinary arts like any other art form. You don't have to be a painter to look at a book of paintings, you know. You know, so I think that that's those are that's kind of where cookbooks are these days. So if we're going to hold Ranhofer's the Epicurean up to that light, where do you think it falls? <laughs> um, well, he says, what did he say at the beginning? It's an analytical and practical studies in the culinary art. Yes, I think he met that. But then he goes on to say it's the best and most effectual manner of preparing healthy and nutritious food. Well, by today's oh, standards, <laughs> but by those standards... Maybe in five years, we're going to find out kale is killing us, you know? (laughs) And so in those days, that was healthy and nutritious, I guess. And then he says he's simplified and explained it. Maybe he missed the mark on that one. (laughs) I'm not sure about that. Well, simplified for who? I mean, it's interesting when you look at that peacock recipe. Yeah. He doesn't tell you everything that you went through at the beginning when we were talking about that, about how you pluck and how you prepare. He doesn't. There's a section at the beginning where there's a very general description of how you do this with with poultry. But in the peacock recipe, you're already supposed to know that. Well, you know, even even recipes, real, real cookbooks for, you know, Mrs. Beaton's cookbooks, even real cookbooks for home cooks will say, up until recently, they've said, you know, beat the eggs and mix the cake in the usual way. So there's some degree of knowledge. You know, women, if you were at home, the woman was raised to either, you know, to cook and keep a household. And that's one of the things you learned when you were growing up is how to beat the eggs in the usual way. But it's interesting. You and I have both taught cooking, and it's Mm -hmm. interesting that sort of common knowledge really is is very rare to even find now if you find it at all because so many people did not grow up knowing how to do that, nor That's did right. their mothers or parents, right. as it may be. It, you know, beat the eggs in the usual well, What's the usual what's way? The usual I'm going to go way? look on YouTube to figure it out. There well, isn't exactly. that. There's nothing that Mm-mm. is is ingrained. It's really interesting about that. Yeah. So I am dying to ask you this. If you could spend a whole afternoon in the kitchen of Delmonico's with Charles Ranhofer, what would you ask him to show you or what would you want to do with him? And I will say right now, I'm sure there are many things you could show him, but what would you (laughs) like to learn from him based on what we know about him? I would like to know what he actually ate himself. What did he eat when he came home after a night of work? That is not the most sensational question, but that's, you know, for a man who spends his whole life, 
his whole, you know, public life, cooking these elaborate things. What does he actually eat? But I think that's a fascinating question of chefs in, in general today. And people are often shocked that chefs that run yeah. these great restaurants go home and have Ramen. often roll of very well. Cup you know, of noodles. <laughs> you know, something very simple and, right. and comforting right. to them. So I, I think... I think it's a really interesting question when you look at someone that appreciates food so so deeply and understands the intricacies of food as clearly he he did and as a chef would have had to at that time. Yeah. And I don't remember who said this. It was a famous chef who said if they their last meal would be a roast chicken, you know, because oh, a properly yeah. a properly cooked roast chicken is delicious. But if it's not properly cooked, then it's right. dried and the skin isn't crispy and, you know, well, all these things. So Minimalism is really the hardest thing to achieve well. You know, anybody can put truffles and ham and all kinds of crazy things in, in a dish. You know, chefs do it every day now. They put all kinds of zany things together. And, okay, well, you don't have a point of reference to how that's supposed to taste. So it might taste okay. But everyone knows what a good roast chicken should taste like. So to achieve the simplicity and perfection there is a whole different story. So before we leave the peacock, any last thoughts on the peacock? That wasn't my first peacock, by the way, I will have to say. Oh, do tell. That I did. (laughs) There was another project I did for Gastronomica magazine where it was a Maestro Martino was the chef. He was an Italian celebrity chef in, I think, the 1500s, maybe 16th century or something. Anyway, he had two recipes, and they wanted me to to make one of these two recipes. And one was a peacock. Same thing. You cook the peacock, but you you take everything off the peacock in one piece with the skin. Of course you do. And the feathers. So that once you cook the inside of the peacock, you stuff it back in and you sew it up with the feathers and the skin and everything. And then you have it spewing. You put um, some kind of alcohol in its tongue and you have it spewing fire as it's brought to the table. Um, I wasn't able to actually achieve that, but I did achieve <laughs> another one. That The alternate dish was to have a fish that was poached and dressed to look like it was still alive, um, swimming in an aspect that was tinged with the color of the ocean to look like it was really swimming. And that I achieved. I remember the photograph. I remember Do the you? photograph in Do Gastronomica. You? Absolutely, because it, yeah. was, it was, the fish yes. was curved. It was, it was, it was an extraordinary realistic. Well, I think you and Charles Renhofer would have gotten We might along, not have been so. so very different, actually. Thank you so, so much, Victoria, for joining me today. I hope, please, that you will come back and that we could look at I some maybe some to. other culinary geniuses. Uh, maybe next time we should go to Paris or London and look at some of, some Let's of those. Let's do. I invite you to find out more about Victoria's world on victoriagranoff.com and follow her on Instagram at at Victoria Granoff. There, it's an extraordinary world. There are posts that are extraordinary. I love following her there. So make sure you uh, do that. So thank you, Victoria. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Mr. Gilded Gentleman, beloved and, friend of mine. 
and the same to you. And thank you, my listeners, for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. I invite you to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support quite literally helps me continue to do the show. And you'll have access to bonus content posted on a regular basis, features such as Under the Velvet Rope, and even the Gilded Gentleman True Crime Club. So join me in two weeks for our next adventure. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You know your proper calling card wherever you find your favorite podcast and sign up for my monthly newsletter at thegildedgentleman.com. I'll see you soon. And what's life without a little glint of gold? Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best – 